if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 6, as we continue in our story in Judges. Uh, by the way, I know it was mentioned, but I just want to congratulate our new members to uh, the membership here at First Missionary. And uh, we do have a class next Sunday, as was mentioned, that if you are interested in learning about what it means to become a member or have questions about that, maybe you're even one of those people that think, is membership even biblical? Why on earth become a member? I encourage you to come, and because I'm going to try to present something and, and convince you that it is biblical, that it is worthwhile, that it is very important to do because uh, membership's a little bit different than like membership at Costco or the Y. When you become a member at First Missionary, way different than that. So I would just encourage you to come, ask questions, uh, learn about our church, and, uh, and then from there decide if you want to become a member or not. Well, Judges chapter 6, um, it's been kind of fun being in Judges. We've seen the Israelites who are delivered time and time again, and then they forget who God is, and they fall back into sin, and then get thrown into oppression again by the Lord, only to finally again cry out to the Lord, and then God sends another judge, and then you keep seeing that cycle repeat and repeat and repeat. We've also seen in Judges some really interesting weapons. Have you noticed this? In chapter 3, God delivered through a left-handed man, and he had fashioned his own dagger, it said, and he used that to kill the fat king, and the fat came and enveloped the dagger, you know, kind of like that. That's what it would have sounded like, you know. And in uh, chapter 4, we saw that Jael used a tent peg and drove it through a general's temple. Did you catch that last week when Dathan was preaching? That's pretty uh, intense, if you will. I know that was a horrible joke. Yeah, that was boo. But, but we've seen God deliver in unexpected and unusual ways in Judges. We're going to keep seeing that again today in Judges chapter 6. And I won't make you stand the whole passage, but if you're able, would you stand at least briefly as we look at Judges chapter 6 and start to get into the story of Gideon, okay? It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of what group of people? The Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So this is some of the most serious oppression we've seen so far that they feel like the Israelites, that they have to hide out and take cover from the Midianites coming in. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them, these Midianites, or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So do you see what's going on here? This, this foreign nation, the Midianites, uh, you really can't even see it on screen. I guess I shouldn't even use this map, but it's outside of this area. They invaded Israel, this green area that they've conquered up to this point in Judges, and they are taking them captive. They are taking their sheep, their livestock, their food. I mean, this is a thorough oppression. And then we keep going in verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Did you catch that? He sent them a what? A prophet. What has he sent before when they cried out to the Lord? A judge. But now he sends 
a prophet, who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and, and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And you may be seated right now. So instead of sending a savior first, God really sends a sermon first. Because the Israelites are not getting it. They keep being delivered and then falling back into the same pattern again and again and again. So God has to remind them through a prophet and give them a sermon. Hey, I rescued you and you're not getting it. Come on, guys, get it. So it just goes to show that, that all the repentance and confession that's been going on in Judges so far is really not that deep. It's kind of surface level repentance, surface level crying out to the Lord. It's more what the Apostle Paul might call worldly sorrow in this New Testament verse, how they're more sorry for the consequences of their sin rather than being sorry for offending the Lord and, and disappointing the Lord and offending a holy God. So let me read 2 Corinthians 7.10 in the New Testament that talks about this. In fact, why don't you read this out loud with me together? It says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So the Apostle Paul in this letter in the New Testament is really telling us what's happening here in the book of Judges, how these people in Judges don't really have godly sorrow, that they're not really sorry for offending the Lord. They're more sorry from a worldly perspective that, you know, they've gotten caught, that they are in severe consequences, that life is not going well. They're, they're more sorry for kind of the horizontal worldly consequences rather than the godly consequences and the vertical consequences of offending a holy God and, and disappointing him. True godly sorrow from the heart will bring true repentance and change that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. In fact, in our lives, it's true as well. If we only repent at a surface level, if we only care about the worldly consequences, that's not true repentance. True repentance starts with godly sorrow for offending God. True repentance is concerned about how we've missed out on our relationship with God, that the only thing we really want back, rather than fixing the situation, which I know is important, but we want God more than anything. That's what the Israelites were missing out on. Let's keep going in verse 11. Verse 11, so God has sent a sermon so far, hasn't rescued them quite yet. It says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Go back to that verse real quick, verse 11. Do you see what Gideon's doing? What's he doing? He's threshing wheat, and where is he doing this at? In a wine press. Now, even if you're not a biblical scholar, do you thresh wheat in a wine press? And the answer is no. A wine press back then was like a pit they dug in the ground and maybe it was lined with stone or plaster and you would trample grapes in order to squeeze the juice out to make wine. Instead of Gideon doing that, he's in this pit or this hole threshing wheat, meaning he is separating the kernels of grain after it's been harvested and he is pounding them out most likely with a whip of some kind. I mean, they are so oppressed that Gideon feels like he has to thresh wheat and grain in a wine press. 
I mean, usually back then you would do so on an elevated floor so that wind could come through and carry away the chaff as you were harvesting the grain and threshing the, the wheat and the grain. But no, he feels like he has to go into such hiding that he's in a wine press. Verse 12 continues. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you. And what does he call him? Mighty warrior. Let's try that again. Say it twice as loud as you just did. Mighty warrior. Much better. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And we're going to stop right there. There's really about 27 sermons I feel like I could preach from this passage, but I won't. I really want to focus in on the theme of calling today. God's calling in your life. Have you ever wrestled with something in your life that God is calling you to do just by a show of hands? Anyone ever wrestled with that in their life that you felt like God's calling you to do something, but you're not sure if he really is or if it's this or that? How many, if you're brave enough, would be willing to raise your hand and say, I am currently wrestling with something that God is calling me to do? Can you just raise your hand and just keep it up there bravely? Just keep it up. Okay, maybe one person. This is sermons for you, Mike, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else wrestling with it too? Don't, don't be shy. How many have ever wrestled with it again? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've ever wrestled with God's calling. Look around with your hands raised. There's a lot of us that do at some point. And usually when we think of God's calling, we think of major decisions like, should I take this job or leave this job? Should I go to school for this? Should I date this person or marry this person? But when actually we think of God's calling in Scripture, if we back up for a second, there's actually two ways that God's calling is used. The first way it's used, God's calling is his calling to salvation. In fact, this may be the dominant way it's used in Scripture, that if you and I are a believer in Jesus Christ, if we have confessed our sin and repented from our sin and turned to the Lord, it's because the king of the universe summoned us. He called us into his family, and then we responded to his call. So if you are a Christian, you have experienced this first call. In fact, Romans 8, the Bible uses this kind of language a lot. Those that God predestined or chose ahead of time and loved, he also what? Called. Those he called, that's to salvation, he also justified, meaning he declared them righteous in his sight and clean and forgiven. Those he justified, he also glorified. So this is the main way, probably, I would say that scripture uses the idea of calling. But the second way it also uses calling, and this is the way I'm talking about today, is God's calling to service, where God calls us specifically to a specific task or an assignment or a direction to do something. And so if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, here's what Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In fact, Paul uses calling both ways here, that since you've been called by God, now I encourage you to live out that calling in your life. And then he'll use it again with this service idea in mind in 1 Corinthians 7, 
1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has what? Called them. That's using it in that second way. Well, I want to focus on that second way. I want to talk about God's calling in our life, specifically for service. Specifically when you're called to do something, whether it seems small just because you're obeying the Lord from Scripture, that's one form of thinking of this, or it's a specific thing in your life that God has called you to do. And before I look at how God does this, I want to look at how we relate to Gideon. Did you catch Gideon's interaction with the Lord? <laughs> Did you catch the things he said when the Lord, this angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and calls him to go and, and really be this leader to save them from the Midianites? Look at how we relate to Gideon. Number one, we often view suffering in God incorrectly. Say that with me. We view suffering in God incorrectly. Or you could be even more specific. We often view the connection between suffering and God incorrectly in our lives. So in verse 12, God tells Gideon, the Lord is with you. Then look at what Gideon says. He says, excuse me, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Why has all this oppression happened to us where the Midianites come in and take our land, take our crops, take our livestock? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and he's given us into the hand of Midian. So do you hear Gideon's question? If God is really active in our lives, if the Lord is really with me, where is God? By the way, have you ever, have you ever asked that sort of question of the Lord too? In fact, if you think about that connection between suffering and God, think of the assumptions that are coming out here. One of the assumptions that Gideon has, and we have this too, is that we assume that if God is really with us, then he will deliver us out of our pain and suffering right away. And if he doesn't, then it means he's absent or he doesn't care. We think that all suffering in life means that God is absent or doesn't care. You ever thought that before? I know I have. We think that if God isn't intervening right now in the way that we want to, that God must not care or he's just absent. But what do we as readers of the story know? We know that God has allowed them to be delivered over to the Midianites. We know that God has been doing this time and time again in the book of Judges, allowing them when they sin to be handed over to these oppressors because God is trying to get their attention. He's trying to wake them up and see that if they keep following their sin, that path will lead to destruction. Often it takes the same thing in our life too, doesn't it? That if life is going well, we may forget God, but then when suffering comes, that's when we cry out to God. And I think that's what God is trying to do right here with the Israelites and Gideon. So we assume, just like Gideon, that if suffering is in our life, it must be because God has abandoned us or he doesn't care. Here's another assumption too. If you and I experience suffering, you can go back a slide, that's okay. Don't wanna give too much away yet. There we go, thank you. <laughs> If we experience suffering, let me look at it again because I just forgot it. There we have those moments. <laughs> if we experience suffering, the best thing that can happen is for God to take the suffering and pain away. Now, I'm all for us praying those kind of prayers. I'm all for you and I praying for prayers of deliverance. God, get me out of this suffering. Get me out of this pain. Bring comfort because he is the God of all comfort and he can deliver. Amen. 
But sometimes the best thing that God can do in our life, no matter what happens, is he can allow it to keep going because he is interested in our soul even more than our bodies. He's interested in in our character. He's interested in us depending on him more and more and more because God wants all of us, not just part of us. And so Gideon right away, he, he brings out some assumptions. He brings out a way that you and I relate to him. Let me apply this to calling for a moment too. Remember I talked, this is about God's calling in our lives, specifically to some specific service. You know, one thing I've noticed as a pastor over the years is how many people are called to do something specific in their pain or because of their pain. You ever notice that? When people go through hard times, yes, it stinks, and yes, it's really hard, and I don't wish that on anyone, but as they go through it and walk with the Lord, it's amazing how over time, it's like God opens their eyes, and now they want to help people going through that same suffering. They want to start a ministry based on the suffering they've experienced. They want to start a nonprofit. I'm not saying you have to do those things, but I've always been amazed when people start something big like that. If you go back in their story, it's because they suffered. And it's because God worked in their suffering and God redeemed that suffering for his calling. Are you with me? I know when my wife and I had a miscarriage early on, before we had our first son, we had two miscarriages. Boy, when I hear of somebody having a miscarriage now, man, I am immediately just kind of broken and, and just want to reach out and help them because we've been through that. We know what it's like. God has opened our eyes that that's a unique kind of pain and suffering. And I can only imagine in a church this size that through the unique pain and struggle you're going through as well, whatever it is, whether you've been divorced or you've lost a loved one, whatever it is, God has a way of redeeming that and, and calling you out to do something with that to, for his glory. Amen? I'm not saying it's easy. It stinks at the time. It really does. Even Gideon in his suffering, he's not realizing that through his pain and oppression and suffering, God's trying to call him and use him to be a deliverer for his people. So this is the first way I think that you and I relate to God and our suffering. We, we view, excuse me, to Gideon, we view suffering in God incorrectly. The second way we relate to Gideon is we view ourselves from a human perspective rather than God's perspective. And real quick, you can shout this out in verse 12. What does the Lord, the angel of the Lord, call Gideon again? He calls him a mighty warrior. Does Gideon see this about himself? No, he doesn't see it at all. In fact, Gideon says, pardon me, my Lord, in verse 15, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm from the wrong tribe, Lord, I'm from the wrong family. I'm not gifted enough. I have the wrong last name, which seems to matter a lot here in this community. <laughs> Call somebody else. <laughs> You ever made excuses like that before too when God's calling you to do something? You're like, Lord, I don't think I'm hearing that right. Maybe it was the pepperoni pizza I had last night. Whatever it is, God, send somebody else. I'm too weak. I'm not qualified. Well, God loves to work through unqualified people. God loves to work through weak people so that he can get the glory. So I think right away when I hear Gideon's story of him being called by God, even though it's unique, I'm not... God's not going to call you to save us from the Midianites. And if he does, come and talk to me. <laughs> but in your specific situation, I think we relate a lot to Gideon. In my remaining time today, I want to focus on how God assures Gideon and us 
When God is calling us to do something, God is calling us to be obedient, even just to his word. Maybe it's to reach out to someone and we've struggled to do that. Maybe it's to forgive someone and initiate a confrontation with someone, which most of us don't like, and we've struggled to do that. How can we have confidence and courage to actually follow God's call, whether it's from scripture or whether it's to do something very specific? Well, let me show you some ways. Number one, here's how God assures us in his calling. Number one, God reminds us of who we are. This is one of the ways. Remember in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior who's hiding in a wine press, threshing your, your wheat and grain. <laughs> the Lord's with you. The Lord reminds Gideon right away who he is in him. And it's not because Gideon's awesome, because Gideon's going to have a lot of flaws we're going to see, but it's because God is with him. You know, this is the old covenant. We were talking about covenant on a Wednesday night. We now in the New Testament on this side of the cross are in the new covenant. I want you to think for a second, in the New Testament especially, what are some truths, if you're you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of Christ, what are some truths from God's word about who we are? What does the Bible say who we are? Just shout them out. I know this is always risky, but what does God say about who we are in him? (coughs) Chosen grace. Chosen by his grace, yeah? He chose us, right? Before we even chose him. What else? Forgiven. We're forgiven. Priest. What's that? Priest. Priest, yeah. God calls all of us a priest. All of us. We're mediators between God and man. What else? Righteous. Righteous, yeah. Not because we do righteous stuff but because Jesus is righteous. Amen? Yeah. Anyone else? I'll give one or two more a chance to say something. We're loved. We're loved. How many of you need to be reminded that you are loved this morning by the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And he doesn't just love you a little. When he sees you, he sees his beloved son, Jesus. You can cry out. Scripture says, Abba, Father, Daddy. You have access to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yeah, so we're all children of God, right? Yeah. All of us who are believers are children. We're adopted into his family. And so how many of you need to be reminded this morning, if God is calling you to do something, often the first place to start is with who you are in Christ, with how God sees you, not how you see you, but how God sees you. You are loved. You are his child. You are forgiven. You are righteous. God reminded Gideon of who he is. He's a mighty warrior, not because Gideon's awesome, but because God is awesome. That's the first thing he did. Look at the second assurance that, Gideon, that God gives Gideon. God reminds us of whose authority we have. So in this calling where God is calling Gideon to lead against the mighty Midianites who are so oppressive and who have lots of camels. Remember, this is before tanks. Look at what verse 14 says. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And then he says this, am I not sending you? The king of the universe tells Gideon, I'm sending you. I can do this. My authority is behind you. And we now in the New Testament era, under the new covenant, we've also been commissioned not to go and rescue the Burnites from the Midianites or whatever you want to say, but 
We've been commissioned to go and make disciples. In fact, Jesus said right before that, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to whom? To Jesus. And if you and I are in Jesus, he has given us that kind of authority to go in his name and make disciples and share the good news and live it out. I mean, if you had a letter from the president of the United States to go and do something, whatever that is, even if you don't like the president or the current administration, you would have a certain kind of authority behind you. How much more so that the king of the universe, we are under his authority and his authority is behind us. The third way that God assures Gideon is that God reminds us and him of his what? Presence. So if you look at verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And so God reminds Gideon, this task may seem big, it may seem tall, you guys are thoroughly oppressed, it may seem like no hope, but I am gonna be with you, God says. That reminds me a lot of the New Testament too. When Jesus gave, a, gave us that great commission in Matthew 28, our, fa- our final marching orders, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And then the very last thing he says is what? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We now in the new covenant, I mean, Gideon didn't have this privilege. We actually have the Holy Spirit who's with us every single moment and not just with us or coming on us like he did with the judges, but he's in us and leading us and guiding us and empowering us for what God has called us to do. I mean, how many of us would be emboldened to live out God's calling in our life if we remember that the Holy Spirit is with us every single moment? And then the last thing that God does in assuring him, so he not only reminds us of who we are and whose authority we have and of his presence, but God actually reminds us of the what? The gospel. And you may say, this is the Old Testament, Rick. Is there good news in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. Because in that sermon that God sent a prophet, he reminds them that they have been delivered before out of Egypt. They've been delivered out of slavery God sent the 10 plagues. God parted the Red Sea. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt to a freedom. He reminds them of that. Why would they take advantage of it? And then God does something really interesting in verse 17. And if you're able to, I would encourage you to stand again. You have to stand for this part. This is so good. God is going to reveal himself and really his gospel to Gideon now. In verse 17, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Do we ever ask for signs, by the way, from God? We can relate to Gideon again here. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon went inside. He prepared a young goat. And from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them, offer them to him, the angel of the Lord, under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. <coughs> and Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Stop right there for a second. Go back one slide. If you were Gideon... What would your reaction be at this moment? You've prepared this meal. 
and fire came and consumed it. What would your reaction be? Well, look what happens to Gideon in verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Allah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrite. So you can be seated now. So really what God is doing here, he's showing his character and he's actually showing the gospel, the good news in the Old Testament. And you may say, how? Well, God is showing that he is so holy. He's so powerful. He consumed that offering in a minute. And you know what? He could consume Gideon or any of us in a minute if he wanted to. That's how powerful he is. That's how holy and different he is. That's how, that's how much we've offended a holy God. And yet at the same time, the Lord accepts Gideon's offering, even though we don't know Gideon's motivations for doing this. In fact, many scholars think this was a very pagan way to do this. He accepts Gideon's offering. He comes near and he allows Gideon to live and, and Gideon responds in worship. And so in this one moment, we see that God is incredibly holy. He could consume Gideon and yet he comes near and is so gracious and loving and so merciful. Where else do we see that in the Bible that God is the exact same way? You wouldn't be wrong to say all of it, but especially we see this in the cross. In the cross, we see that God is so holy that sin has to be punished and it had to be punished with the death of the eternal son of God who took on flesh. That's how much God takes seriously sin, that somebody must pay for sin, that blood must be spilled for sin, which I know seems kind of weird to us, but God takes it so seriously that somebody had to pay. And yet God is so loving that he did it for you and me. This wasn't just an example, but God said, when, I, when my son died on the cross, I'm dying for you and for you and for you and for you. That's how much I love you. In fact, I put my son there in your place. So on the cross, God is both holy. He could strike us down. We see that. Yet God is so loving that he struck down his son and not us. So Gideon has an encounter. He doesn't quite realize this yet. With the gospel, God's character in the Old Testament, we have an even greater encounter in the New Testament. And do you know what happens when you and I encounter the gospel like this daily? Do you know what happens? Well, we're actually going to see an example in Gideon. So God has assured Gideon of his presence, his authority, and the gospel, and his identity. And look what God calls Gideon to do next. And we'll end with this. It says, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from which herd? Your father's herd. So it belongs to his father. It's like taking your dad's car, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. So he's saying, go to your family and destroy their gods and take his, his car, take his, his bull. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you struggle with confrontation? How many of you would like to be called to go and take something that's precious and belongs to your family and, you know, change it, get rid of it, <laughs> make an example of it. That's what God's calling Gideon to do. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it when? At night rather than in the daytime. And in some ways you can't blame him. Verse 28, 
In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? You know, let's check the video cameras. When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. So apparently one of his servants probably spilled the beans. Verse 30, the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash, this is Gideon's father, replied to the hostile crowd around him. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now, do you see what Gideon, even though he was a little afraid, which I think we can relate to, was emboldened to do? At the beginning of the story, Gideon is questioning, God, where are you? I thought you would be with us if we're, you know, we're suffering. And by the end of this story, it's only like a day later, he is going and cutting down the town's altars. He's confronting his family. What gave him the assurance to actually fulfill this calling? Well, it wasn't Gideon and his strength, but it was God's presence, God's authority, God's identity, and of course, God's gospel. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment just to think, what might God be calling you to do in response today? Maybe it's something very specific like Gideon. Maybe it's just something from his word that you know an area that the spirit is working on in your life that you need to be more obedient. Maybe you need to forgive someone. Maybe you need to reach out to someone. Maybe you need to start something. Maybe just be faithful and persevere in something. What is God calling you to do today that you need his assurance and presence right now? question is, what, what do you need to be reminded about God this morning? God spends a lot of time really encouraging Gideon about his presence, his authority, his identity, and the good news that he can come near and not destroy him. Where do you need to be reminded about God's character this morning? Father, I pray that this moment would be the many, would be the first of many moments, Lord, in our life this week. That we would take time constantly to think, how are you speaking to us? What are you calling us to do from your word? Maybe in a circumstance. And Lord, we often feel like Gideon, we confess that we don't want to do it. We're afraid. Lord, send somebody else, like Moses said. I'm not qualified, like Gideon said. But remind us today of who we are, that we are mighty warriors of God, that we are children of God, that we have incredible authority because of what you've done. It's not our authority, it's yours through us, that we have your presence and we have most of all the good news of Jesus Christ to empower us. Lord, I pray that even this week you would enable us to take some action steps, Lord, to follow your calling obediently and by your spirit. 
Lord, may First Missionary Church be filled with people who regularly go out called by God to live for the Lord under your strength and under your power. Lord, thank you for this story that we can relate to. I pray that it would change us by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen.